Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So Vice had an incredible story about how because Russia has restricted access to so much of the internet within the country, that people are turning to Pornhub. Ukrainians are using Pornhub to upload videos of themselves talking about <laughs> what the war has been like for oh them God. because Pornhub is not, or not yet, blocked in in Russia. Well, Putin doesn't want a mass revolt. I mean, he's already exactly. dealing with protests. He can't handle yeah. a general strike. Exactly. That would happen, of course. I mean... This is taking reading it for the articles to a whole new level. I like it. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Infinity Bore. I am your host, Scott R. Anderson, uh, back with you again this week with my two co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are joined by no one for the second week in a row because we are having some real scheduling problems on this new early recording time we're trying out that we're working our way through. We're very popular. We're very popular. Everybody wants to come on the show. It's very exciting. But we are, in spite of our lack of a guest, very excited to be here talking over some of the week's news with you once again in a little bit of a perhaps forced lighthearted mood after our deeper and more serious dive last week. Obviously, the topics we are dealing with are still serious. Uh, we want to give them due respect, but we are uh, going to try and get a little bit of a, our more normal pace as we go through the week's big stories. Topic one for this week, which we are calling the Thanks for Nothing Volodya edition. Topic one is, like Stalin without the stash. The unpopularity of Russia's war in Ukraine has led President Vladimir Putin to dramatically constrain what little free media and space for public dissent Russia had left. How will Russia be changed by this conflict? Topic two, the no-no fly zone. The United States and Europe are finding themselves at loggerheads with the beleaguered government of Ukraine over the latter's request for a no-fly zone and other forms of support that the United States and allies are so far unwilling to extend. What support should the United States and its allies provide to the Ukrainian government, and where is the line that they shouldn't cross? And topic three, the crime fraud perception. A new filing by the January 6th committee points out that it sure looks a lot like President Trump might have committed some crimes in the aftermath of the 2020 election. What does this filing mean for the future of a possible Justice Department investigation? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you. So Russia, which is not known as a particularly open and free country, has just in the last few weeks barreled rapidly towards a level of internal repression and state control that honestly the Russians haven't seen since the worst times of the Soviet Union. Although you know, protests are in increasing as the Russian people increasingly understand what their government is doing, at the same time, the security services in Russia are taking an increasingly repressive approach to shutting those protests down. In addition, the Putin regime has taken steps to clamp down on the last vestiges of free media, uh, both on the internet and on the radio, in Russia. And while this is happening, a lot of the Western and outside media and companies that uh, have played actually a really important role in creating some openness within Russia, they're exiting the country either because they don't feel like it's safe to operate there. You know, we're recording this uh, as usual on, on Tuesday morning. And um, you know, just, I think, half an hour ago, the New York Times announced that it's removing its reporters from Russia because it's no longer uh, safe to report there. Obviously, you know, we've had uh, major social media companies uh, cease operations. Um, so, you know, it, just in the last few weeks, we've seen an incredible closing off of Russia. And this is something that is important, you know, not just in terms of how we expect Russia, in particular the Russian people, to continue to react to the war in Ukraine, but also 
going forward, um, you know, these these changes that are happening now could have huge long-term effects uh, for what is one of the most important countries in the world. Quinta, you've thought a lot about this, and, and I know you you want to have some some things you, you want to discuss. So let me let me turn it o- over over to you. I mean, what are the the big changes that are, are happening, and, and what do you think their effects are going to be? The main thing that's jumped out at me is just how rapid the changes have been. The thing that I keep thinking about is a, a tweet from uh, Seva Ganitsky, who is a politics professor in Toronto, who I'm going to paraphrase, but essentially noted that what we've basically seen over the last few weeks on Russia is Russia going from a kind of typical middle income hybrid regime to a North Korea style autocracy over the span of about a week. The North Korea comparison is is maybe a little exaggerated, but I think it does point to the extent that Russia is rapidly cutting off it or it's been cut off really from the global economy with unbelievable speed and the sort of the freedoms that people had over the last decade or two decades really have just been completely erased. Um, so for example, Echo Moskvi, which is a liberal radio outlet that's been on the air for I don't know how long. Um, the last time it was taken off the air was actually during the uh, Moscow coup attempt at the very end of the Soviet Union. They have been taken off the air the TV Rain, which is another independent media outlet, has also been taken off the air. Uh, their last broadcast was Swan Lake, which is an- another <laughs> reference uh, to the 1990s coup attempt where they, the government played Swan Lake instead of having news broadcasts. So really, the last vestiges of independent media are just gone suddenly. I mean, in a moment, and journalists are fleeing the country as you said, Alan, the New York Times announced just this morning that it's going to be pulling its journalists from the country. Other outlets uh, like the the BBC, uh, Radio Free Europe have been pulling their journalists as well because Russia just passed into law this incredibly harsh law saying that you could potentially face up to 15 years in prison for promoting fake news, essentially, about the war, which means referring to it as a war, more or less. People don't know how that law is going to be implemented. There have been, I think I saw the last figure I saw was 10,000 to 13,000 people um, arrested at protests across Russia, which is an unbelievably huge amount, much higher than the last sort of round of mass arrests around the protests um, concerning dissident Alexei Navalny's arrest uh, a few years ago. And that, I think, speaks to just how unpopular the war is, at least within a certain segment of the Russian population, because, you know, it's not like you you go out, you protest, you get arrested, and then, you know, you get a ticket and you go home. It's something that can really has the potential to mess up your your life. Um, and so I think, I mean, there are a lot of questions to be raised here. The first off, it's absolutely heartbreaking in terms of, you know, what people in, in Russia are experiencing, and I don't mean to diminish the experiences of Ukrainians at all, but, you know, this is a group of people who lived through the catastrophic period of the 90s in Russia. Sort of Putin came in and his whole offer has been of stability, economic stability, political stability, and that's just gone in an in an absolute instant. And, you know, Russians can't may not be able to leave the country soon. They've lost their savings. Companies like MasterCard and Visa have pulled out, so it's much harder to just simply, like, get on the Moscow metro. I think the the big question that it raises for me, apart from, you know, just the sort of sadness of seeing this happen to the people of this country, is what it means for the stability of the Russian government. Um, like I said, Putin's legitimacy is really founded on this promise of stability, and suddenly that's gone. On the other hand, he's also cracked down so aggressively on the political opposition that it's not really clear to me who else could take his place. There's been some talk of maybe a military coup, which is also just an incredible thing to be discussing. And the fact that it's not, you know, completely out to lunch to discuss that is itself pretty incredible. But it also strikes me, I mean, Putin is a monster and I would be very glad when he's gone. But I also worry that his instability or or even his fall from power could lead to even greater instability in, in Russia and therefore in, in Europe and around the world. Scott, I'm, I'm curious what you think. I agree with everything you said. I mean, this is a war that is destroying not just one state, but two states, both Ukraine and Russia. Part of that has to do with uh, economic sanctions being imposed on Russia, but part of it is the Russian reaction to those economic sanctions um, and to the public reaction against it. 
and this is what we talked about a little bit last week, which is that these economic sanctions, you know, one way to explain the logic behind them is it's a tool that's pushing for some manner of regime change. Maybe not necessarily like a flip over of the government, maybe not a coup, maybe it is simply politically undermining of Putin enough that he feels the need to capitulate in Ukraine and is weakened, therefore, from that. But there's not that many other causal tools other than forcing Putin to wildly reconsider his, his decision making in regard to Ukraine or undermining him and forcing other people to make decisions for him. That That's how these sanctions work. That's how you get this massive pressure being felt by the Russian people communicated to a policy change in Ukraine. And it is sad it has to get there. I will say one thing that's really notable about this in my mind is that particularly in the information space and media space, some of the regime's own actions are being complemented by the stigmatization of Russia in transnational corporations. So we see Netflix and other multimedia companies voluntarily cutting off services to Russia. In my mind, that's wildly counterproductive. These are companies we want to have be projecting non-regime governed messages or, or, or less regime governed messages into Russia to give ac- some access to information and some perspective of the outside world, even if it is not you know, a complete accurate narrative of what's actually happening in Ukraine, which the Russian people currently don't have access to, at least it is a cultural connection to the outside world that undermines some of the basic assumptions um, that are reinforcing the Putin worldview that he's putting forward to justify his actions. If I were the Biden administration, I would seriously think about engaging these companies and trying to discourage those who haven't taken this step yet, although there aren't many, as far as I can tell, and encouraging those that have to consider re-engaging or keeping those services up. There may be some legitimate sanctions concerns, particularly those for those taking money that may not have like a sanctions compliance regime in place to ensure that they're not like taking money from sanctioned entities. Maybe that's part of the concern here. Uh, Although, uh, you know, there are ways around that sanctions compliance isn't impossible to stand up. You know, a license might be appropriate in that case. Say, like, this is okay. This is something we want Russians to have access to. If the regime kicks these people out, so be it. But make the regime take that step. Um, Discourage these companies from letting Putin off the hook um, by getting ahead of his own repression with their own voluntary disengagement. Um, That just strikes me as really counterproductive in this particular moment. Yeah, I I totally agree. And and I I mean, I think it, it also reflects a broader danger of how of how public opinion in the West is responding to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, this is something we're going to talk about in the next segment with discussions of the no-fly zone and, and sort of uh, what, what that represents. But I, I do think there has been a really unimpressive, I'm not sure it's even demonization per se, but a really unreflective kind of general anti-Russianness among, frankly, a lot of people that that should know better, right? And I want to, I want to be clear. I mean, you know, my family is a bunch of Soviet Jewish refugees from Russia, right? So it's not like I have any sort of particular love of uh, this country, though, you know, I did grow up speaking the language because that's you know, where my where my parents were, were, were from. The, the extent to which this has turned into a kind of repeat at a kind of much broader level of the sort of silliness about freedom fries, you know, during the uh, the Iraq war, or, you know, I think more seriously, you can probably, you know, look at the the uh, response of a, a lot of Americans during World War One, when, you know, people stopped teaching German in American schools, because, you know, of, of who the, the, the United States was was waging war against. You know, I think this is a an indication of the hysteria that one can fall into if one does not distinguish carefully between you know who the bad actor here is which is again chiefly putin and his enablers and the broader russian people many of whom oppose what's going on and even those who don't are frankly just ordinary human beings who are living in an information environment that is feeding them a bunch of lies and i have to say it's a hard thing to admit but the vast majority of us right if we were in that same position would have the exact same political viewpoints, right? There, there's a lot of there, but for the grace of God, go I perspective that I think we need to appreciate. And and so, you know, when, you know, major arts organizations disassociate with Russian uh, artists because they are not sufficiently loud in their condemnation of Putin, look, I, I get where you're coming from. And I'm sure that makes the Western arts organizations feel better, but 
you know, don't pretend that this shows some uh, deep corruption or lack of courage on the part of these Russian artists when, frankly, this is what anyone would do in that situation. Um, and so I, I think, you know, again, the person who is most responsible for what is happening in Russia is 99% Vladimir Putin. There's no question about this, right? Uh, and even the best and most targeted and most thoughtful response would have catastrophic effects on the Russian economy because that is what is strategically appropriate in this moment. Um, but there's no need to add to that a unnecessary demonization of uh, of a people who, while obviously not suffering in any way like the Ukrainians, are themselves suffering and will be for the foreseeable future living in this authoritarian state. Yeah, I live not too far in D.C. from a, a restaurant called Russia House, which is, I think, pretty well known here. And they it's not actually owned by a Russian, but a friend of mine walked by the other day um, after the invasion and somebody had smashed all of the windows in the front and the the restaurant is having to be boarded up. That's just... It's just a terrible thing to do. I mean, and there have also been suggestions. I saw Eric Swalwell in Congress, who is uh, a Democrat who should know better, suggesting that we should kick out all Russian students in the U.S., which I think is fantastically cruel and wrongheaded. I mean, if anything, it would it seems to me to make sense to help the many, many, many Russian people who are trying to get out of the country. I mean, there have been stories of people like crossing into the Baltics in the middle of the night on foot, you know, with their parents and their dogs because they're so desperate to get out, um, that it makes far more sense to be helping both from a strategic and just from a human perspective, these people who want nothing to do with with Putin's regime. I also wanted to point to a, a really moving New York Times article about people in Ukraine who are talking to their relatives in Russia who don't believe them that there's a war. And one man, uh, his name is Misha Katsurin, set up a, a website that I'm going to mispronounce this, but it's called Papa Pover, which Alan, I understand, means like Papa, believe me, um, that basically gives people tips about how Ukrainians or people living in Ukraine, how to talk to their relatives in Russia who are only watching state media to make them believe that there's something going on. And one of the things that really struck me about it is how the whole website is basically saying, like, this is coming from a place of love. Don't get angry. You know, they they don't have access to to the news. You know, make sure that you're patient and, and talk to them and, you know, maintain your relationship with them. It's really moving in a sort of an alternative way of thinking about this. And it also, frankly, struck me that it's very similar to the guides I've seen written up by people who have lost relatives to sort of right wing rabbit holes of how to try to, you know, pull somebody out from QAnon or or something like that, which I think goes back to your point, Alan, that, you know, this is not a particular toxicity in, in the Russian soul or any garbage like that. It's just a result of what happens when you take a bunch of people and put them in an environment where free media is extremely, extremely limited. Well, and I think that just gets it back to what is the strategy underlying our sanctions approach to Russia in all of this. If it is to try and put a wedge between Putin and his commitment to the war in Ukraine and the Russian people, that can't just come by isolating the Russian people further. You've got to really highlight and drive that wedge. And a lot of that is about messaging and cultural engagement. Uh, you know, Cold Warriors knew this to some extent. It wasn't universally accepted, but there was a cultural communications element of the struggle over the Cold War for years and years and years because people understood, well, whatever, you know, economic pressure, military pressure, political pressure we can bring, those cultural divides actually play in our benefit. It's a strength of a democracy that we can have open speech and people can see we can criticize each other and recognize things wrong with our society. And when they don't see the same openness to those possibilities in their society, it can underscores the point that they're not having uh, maybe the frankest view of reality. Um, I think we've lost sight of that a little bit here in this effort to what appears to be, particularly in the U.S. domestic political scene, but frankly in Europe and other places as well, too often a drive to just ratchet up the sanctions however we can. You know, Right now, it looks like Congress feels like it didn't get a bite at the apple, and so it wants to look tougher even than the Biden administration. So there's bipartisan support for cutting off U.S. oil imports, which looks like it's set to happen today when we're recording on Tuesday, uh, the 8th. You know, that particular move by the United States alone, it doesn't sound like it's being joined by all of Europe. The U.K. is cutting off oil, not gas imports, doesn't actually hopefully impact things generally. 
in terms of there's not a huge lot of imports of those types coming to those countries. So if you're not involving Europe, like you're, you're having a limited impact on the overall kind of oil market scene and Russian exports of it. But, you know, it is really just if it's a symbolic gesture, like kind of what's the point driving up oil prices, which this almost certainly will do energy prices actually plays to Russia's favor through those avenues where it is still able to export those resources. And there are plenty of them still, Um, you know, it just strikes me as as counterproductive. And we need to try and break out of that ratchet up mode that's so easy to get into in these political moments if we're going to be maximally effective and actually driving Russia to change its policy in Ukraine. I think the Biden administration knows this. I think they're trying to triangulate some tricky domestic political things, but I think they need to be a little more lean forward and think ahead about the fact that this is going to be a longer term campaign and it has to have elements other than just maximum sanctions pressure on Russia moving forward. That I think is a a good transition and this time an actually good transition to our next topic, which is talking more about U.S. and European support to Ukraine. Uh, So, Scott, as you've said, there's been really just a pretty overwhelming wave of support given to Ukraine from from Western powers, particularly from the U.S. and EU. Um, I will give a shout out to your extremely useful piece uh, written with a, a number of other lawfare contributors running through what the many, many, many different sanctions are that have been placed on Russia. Um, I saw in Politico EU that there may be further sanctions put on Russia today by the EU. Um, And as you've said, it looks like the U.S. is going to be cutting off Russian oil imports today, although it is, again, not totally clear how much of an effect that is actually going to have. On the other hand, you know, this is a pretty hefty assistance package. President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine, as one might expect, is is pushing for more assistance and reportedly is is still pushing for a no-fly zone over Ukraine uh, or some kind of other support to Ukraine, including perhaps even fighter jets given to the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, I do think that, you know, on the one hand, this support is inspiring and on a sort of a moral level, the right thing to do for people who are really fighting to hold on to a democracy that they've won at a pretty high cost. Um, On the other hand, I think it also raises questions, as you say, Scott, about, you know, at what point do we move from strategic assistance and strategic sanctions to assistance that we're giving or that the EU is giving because of political pressure or because it just kind of seems like a good thing to do um, rather than something that is calculated carefully, which is especially important, of course, because obviously Russia is a nuclear power and we really, really, really don't want this war to escalate into a broader conflict between Russia and NATO. So I'll throw it to to either one of you. I'm curious what your thoughts on here. I've definitely been a little anxious about the direction that things are are headed. Frankly, um, is that anxiety misplaced or does it seem like things are maybe spiraling a little out of control? So I'll say I think this is another area where we need to start shifting our strategic thinking a little bit. And I, by we, I think I'm in part talking about the commentariat in this, uh, the kind of like Twitter perspective, because we seem to have drawn some strange red lines for ourselves. The United States, European allies, and frankly, a lot of people who follow these issues on Twitter seem very comfortable basically with ratcheting up maximum support to the Ukrainian government through all sorts of arms exports and sales, up to including potentially fighter jets. Um, I don't even hear that much discontent over the prospect of transferring fighter jets. The countries that were originally supposed to transfer them to Ukraine actually backed out because they're like, well, we actually need these fighter jets to defend ourselves from Russia if we need them in the future. Um, that's why right now there's an effort to try and like replace the Polish jets with US jets so that they can hand their Russian-made jets to uh, the Ukrainians. But there's, there's very little limits being posed on the amount of material support in terms of arms and military materiel. But then there's an incredibly bright line around anything that looks like military engagement or participation, particularly the no-fly zone has been that sort of flashpoint. Uh, and there should be no illusion about this. Like a no-fly zone, I think everybody says, oh, nobody understands what a no-fly zone is. There's, there should be no confusion. Like a no-fly zone is a military engagement, right? It's controlling airspace through the threat and application of force in a variety of ways. But it's an interesting line to draw because that's the line that Vladimir Putin wants to draw, right? It is that and that he is reinforced with his own public statements. And it is that 
any sort of engagement in the sphere, in the ground on Ukraine, whether a no-fly zone, as he specifically referenced, or otherwise, is going to be seen as something that I will respond to militarily. And hidden behind that is this risk of escalation to another stage of conflict, nuclear or a larger conventional conflict. And that's strategic on Putin's part. Because frankly, he has his, it seems quite clear now, two weeks into this war, he has no conventional edge whatsoever against NATO forces. The actual forces postured in Ukraine seem very unlikely they would be able to put up any more of a fight against NATO forces, probably far less of a fight against NATO forces than the Ukrainian forces are. And the fact that, you know, Ukrainian air force is still in the air is pretty remarkable, but it's still sustained reality you know, two weeks into this war. That may change over time, but I think it just underscores that there is military capabilities that are where the you know United States and Allied forces would have a conventional edge on the ground, and Putin is using the threat of escalation to neutralize those by saying, no, you're not coming in. There's no legal barrier. The United States clearly could come into the support of Ukraine and defense of Ukraine at its invitation if it wanted to under international law. Uh, it really is just a policy decision saying we're not going to risk that level of escalation. You know, I think it is perhaps we are too easy to embrace that red line too vocally and too publicly. I think the possibility of some sort of intervention in Ukraine done legally with the Ukrainian government's permission is another major source of pressure to put on the Putin regime, particularly on its operations around Ukraine. Now, do I think that should be a no-fly zone? No. Do I think it should be trying to hold territory? No. Do I think you could have a time-delimited effort to you know, prevent airstrikes on caravans of refugees? Maybe. Uh, and I'm not sure we should take that categorically off the table just because there is some risk of conventional engagement between Russian and European or U.S. military forces. That is inherent in any sort of armed conflict. And frankly, providing arms to the Ukrainians also runs that risk. Um, it's just there seems to be this mutually agreed upon red line, but it's a red line that really supports Russia in their operations. And I and I'm just not sure that accepting it uncritically actually is going to be the most effective strategic move for the United States or its allies in this conflict. So l listeners sadly can't see the increasing contortions in, in my and Quinta's faces as Scott was talking. And, and I have to say, as, as someone who is usually on the receiving end of the facial contortions of my uh, fellow podcast host, it's, it's nice to, to it's, Scott, now you know how I feel. So, so it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I agree with your analysis and then like aggressively disagree with your conclusion. So I agree with you as to how you've characterized the red line. And I agree with you also that it is a somewhat arbitrary line, right? Why is it so different to give the Ukrainians missiles uh, that they will then shoot at Russian tanks? And, and it's, uh, you know, why is that so different than the, you know, an American finger uh, on the button shooting the missile at the Russian tank, right? But yet that red line exists and that's not a new invented line. I mean, this is the rules under which the Cold War was fought, right? For, you know, for decades and decades, the United States and the Soviet Union, United States and the Soviet Union were you know, engaged in a bunch of proxy wars against each other where they would fund and they would spend huge amounts of money and send huge amounts of material to the other side's opposition um, and the other side's, you know, military, um, military opponents, right, to just... CEG America's involvement in the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. That was an understood way that you kept some relative degree of peace between the two major superpowers. And if that is the line that Putin, because he thinks it's in his strategic interests or because he is a product of the Cold War and that's just sort of what he understands and that's where his brain space is, that seems to hugely benefit actually the West because it allows the West to shovel huge amounts of money and resources into Ukraine, you know, support the Ukrainian resistance, which even if Ukraine, you know, falls in some overall sense, will lead to a prolonged and miserable insurgency uh, that will basically cripple Russia, you know, for the next decade, if it really insists on holding um, this massive country against its will, right, while also keeping the, the threat of escalation between nuclear superpowers at a minimum. Now, you know, I agree with you that that ideally we could just help the Ukrainians and we could enter the country, right? And we could defend them like, you know, we defended Kuwait from Iraq. But of course, that's not the situation because we're not dealing with that sort of threat and the risks of 
um, intentional or accidental nuclear escalation is just so enormous. So, you know, I, look, I, 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 I agree that the red line is a bit um, arbitrary, but I think where it is, is actually in a really good place for the West, given what I assume is the ultimate real red line, which is that for better or for, for worse, right, the West is not going to risk nuclear war to save Ukraine, right? Now, we can have that debate, Right, but let's then have that debate in an open and honest way, right? Uh, rather than pretend that that's not where some of these proposals will lead. Now, Scott, you you totally, I think, correctly to your credit, discuss the implications of a no-fly zone, which is to have a no-fly zone is essentially to declare war on Russia because you have to shoot Russian planes down. Listener, Scott is now contorting his face. Scott, what do you think? Wait, why why am I wrong? How is a no-fly zone not declaring war on Russia? Just on this minor, on this specific point, a no-fly zone is an intervention. In this case, right, uh, it would be an action on behalf of the Ukrainian government to patrol its territory. Would it bring, put the U.S. forces in proximity to Russian forces? Yes. Would there be a threat of use of force to sustain the no-fly zone? Yes. Would, would the United States actually act to target Russian forces it would be whether they violate the terms of the no-fly zone. So it's not it's not the same as declaring war an open war on Russia. That's that's part of this kind of narrative to go into it. And and the reason why I think this is important is because you know you can constrain. I I I think there's a very high risk of saying like some sort of no-fly zone over a broad swath of Ukrainian territory strikes me as far too risky because you couldn't do that. That would essentially be pushing Russia back, right? You'd be engaging their strategic objectives. But again, as a as a narrower proposal that we've seen floated recently, and I am actually proposing an even narrower time delimited version of this, would you say a forty eight hour humanitarian corridor from you know Kiev to the west to Poland, and enforcing that to prevent airstrikes from striking caravans of civilians? That is a type of no fly zone, if you want to call it that, or you can call it a million other different things. Does that mean it's necessarily going to war with Russia? No, it's only if Russia actually responds militarily and says it strikes that. And I think my point is that Russia has a lot of reasons not to respond that way because it would be escalating on its own. And we really should be realistic and parity and like engage the different modes of escalation in a way that actually serves strategic interests instead of categorizing them wildly differently. If you ask me whether the risk of escalation is absolutely destroying the Russian economy to rising to a nuclear conflict as opposed to a 48-hour humanitarian corridor in Ukraine, I think destroying the Russian economy is a much bigger risk of escalation to a major conflict with Russia. Now, it doesn't mean it's not warranted. I think there's a lot of argument for that. It doesn't mean it's not warranted to also be very careful about action on the ground in Ukraine. But I'm not sure those actual risk calculations fit the red lines as we've drawn them. I'm I'm gonna side with Alan here on team face contortion. I yeah, it's Scott. I mean, it matters not only if we consider ourselves at war with Russia. It also matters whether Russia considers us at war with them. And honestly, the thing that concerns me the most here is that we have no idea right now if Putin is a rational actor. And I mean rational not only in the international relations sense, but just in the sense of, is this man's brain working right? And what kind of information is he getting? Because the vast majority of Russia analysts that I have seen and that I and who I know have been commenting that they never thought that he would have engaged in this war because it is, not to put too fine a point on it, completely insane. Just everything about it makes absolutely no sense. And so... Given that we do not know what kind of information he's getting, whether or not he is drawing reasonable conclusions from the information that he is getting, it just strikes me that the the West has to be unbelievably careful here not to escalate further. And because we don't know at what point Russia might deploy a nuclear weapon or might consider NATO to be involved in the conflict. It just that the the risks are so catastrophically high, especially when you're dealing with an actor whose state of mind you just deeply do not understand that I well I completely agree with you that the the red lines that we have drawn here don't really make that much sense and I am also worried about you know weakening Putin's feeling of of hold on power could potentially lead to, you know, 
a nuclear detonation or all kinds of bad things um, that, you know, it it makes sense not to escalate further in a direction that could, you know, increase the odds of that happening, even if the odds are low, because the outcome is so unbelievably bad. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. But just to double down, Quinto, on that point you just made, that still came calculus doesn't lead you, would lead you to say that all our sanctions measures are also problematic. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not saying, I, I think that, look, like the US policymakers and European policymakers have made a certain decision of what they are willing to do. I am not a policymaker. I don't have visibility into those discussions. I do think that, you know, I hope that they are considering this as a potential downside of those those actions that they have taken. It strikes me that increasing US or EU direct military assistance to Ukraine further exaggerates those risks to an extent that I am extremely worried about taking that step. I want to understand, Scott, your your analysis of the no-fly zone, because I, I am just not, not understanding it and I, I want to figure it out. So in order to enforce a no-fly zone, in order for it to be credible, right? You have to be willing to shoot down Russian planes, which is to say you have to be willing to engage in a armed conflict with Russia. And if you think that an armed conflict is for whatever reason, qualitatively different than economic sanctions, which again, it does seem to be the perception both in the West and in Russia, and to Quinta's point, it's the perception in some sense that counts the most. How, how is it that imposing any sort of no-fly zone, even a minimal no-fly zone, right, you know, is not expressing a willingness to go to war with Russia? Now, now you, you, may, you may say, right, or one, one, one may say, well, if you're doing a really, really minimal one, um, then it's unlikely that Putin will violate it. But but in that case, one might not even need to do the no-fly zone if it's so minimal, right? So there, there just seems to be like an unavoidable choice here. And again, we can talk about whether it's worth doing, but it, I, I don't feel like one can sort of have one's cake and eat it too with respect to being willing to shoot down Russian planes, but not being willing to go to war with Russia. So a willingness to, you know, go to war, engage militarily with Russia, to respond to a Russian offensive action is what you have to assert here, right? You say, we're enforcing a no-fly zone. No sorts of conduct of XYZ will happen over this territory. And if it is, or if anybody targets the jets we have patrol enforcing this, uh, we are going to respond militarily. Whether that happened or not depends on Russia's actions, Right. Where I think the hard case is, and I want to make clear, I'm not endorsing this policy, but I do think it's something we need to have a conversation about that's a lot more critical of the red lines we've drawn, is, is there really no space in the entirety of potential operations in or involving Ukraine where we think we can't say we are at the request of the lawful Ukrainian government in a way that's entirely consistent with international law. And I think we should get congressional approval too, frankly, so it's comply with domestic law because this is the type of case you probably should get Congress on board with, that we are going to say we are willing to take certain actions to advance certain objectives. The one that I think is the most immediate one because it's been talked about, I think there are other ones too, but is again, a humanitarian corridor, right? 72 hours free with confidence that you're going to be free of, you know, 
airstrikes and targeting by Russian forces could make a really different, big humanitarian difference on the ground for Ukrainians. And that's something that I value. I think maybe some military strategy realist type people would say, oh, we shouldn't, humanitarian concerns not really concern Ukrainian nationals. Who cares? In a kind of very cold hearted, you know, deliberately consciously so realist calculus. I, I, I don't buy that. I buy those calculuses in a lot of ways, but I think there is some value to these humanitarian sparing here. Is the really is the actual risk of escalation, the actual risk that Russia is going to take that step and respond militarily if we say for 72 hours, you're not going to bomb anybody on the road from Kiev to Lviv without incurring a potential U.S. military response? I don't think the risk of the escalation there is nearly as high as a lot of the other measures we've imposed. And I think the humanitarian benefit may be substantial. Now it's a it's a hard choice. I don't want to I don't want to pretend like I'm endorsing it because I I agree I'm not a policymaker so I don't get to have to make these hard choices. But I don't think it's as easy as kind of the snide what do we want to get in a nuclear war sort of Twitter rebuttal that has become de rigueur for most people following this stuff really does justice to the actual calculus that's in play here and the actual costs for Ukrainians and for a lot of other people. And it's worth noting I, by the way just one last point. Like the Ukrainian government's asking for this, right? Like they really, really want this. Now they are fully in in the pot, right? They're like fully pot committed on this sort of conflict. They like kind of want to pull in outer powers. And I also don't think that means that their sense of where the risk calculus on this extends to seeing Putin as not being willing to go to the extreme case of like nuclear war, bombing things, doing other things that are going to scare the Western alliance away. Because I don't think that would actually be in their interest. Now, maybe they're wrong about that. But the people with the skin in the game uh, to the highest extent, I think, see some of the strategic calculus being made out. Now, I think they push way further than probably outside actors should, because again, they're pot committed. They've got more, way more um, to lose if things don't play out their way. But I also think it is a little bit of a sign of the different strategic calculuses that people involved these actors can come in with. Because um, I don't think that they, actually the worst case scenario is something they would appreciate either. So as to what the Ukrainians are asking, I mean, I think the point is exactly what you've been saying, Scott. They're fully committed. They're fully committed because this ends badly for them no matter what. I mean, the, the, the tra- there are many tragedies here. But the kind of great tragedy that makes it sort of almost like a Shakespearean tragedy right? is it is the very strength of the Ukrainian people, the very strength of their military, the very strength of Zelensky's leadership that guarantees that Ukraine is going to come out of this a completely destroyed country, right? Whether under Russia's control or, you know, if it somehow manages to, quote unquote, win, which at this point would just be an incredibly bloody stalemate, right? Now, that's a choice for the Ukrainians to make. And, you know, I suspect that I would make the same choice if I were a Ukrainian and, and feeling the, the nationalism that one naturally feels when one is being invaded. But I, I, I don't think that the Ukrainian request can be taken as indicative of what is best from a global geostrategic perspective, given that they have already factored in, I have to assume that much of their country is going to be reduced to rubble, you know, in the next several weeks. But going back to the, the no-fly zone point, I, I think where the disagreement that you know the three of us are having, and again, I think it's impossible to adjudicate that disagreement, but at least we can sort of get it out on the table um, and then see how it plays out over the next couple of, of weeks. I think what Quinta and I are, the distinction Quinta and I are making is between the type of uh, action that the West can do without escalation. Um, and so you're totally right, Scott, that the economic sanctions are proving devastating and, of course, much more devastating than any sort of no-fly zone for 48 hours could have on Russia as a whole. And yet, there seems to be in this moment, a consensus both in the West and most importantly in Russia, that there is something qualitatively different about economic sanctions than direct military engagement. Whereas I think the the position you're coming from is that's actually not true. And um, we have to look at the effects of those things. But again, based on everything Putin is saying about how he views military engagement, even limited, as opposed to sanctions, I don't see a way that you can impose even a small 48-hour humanitarian no-fly zone, right, the minimal thing, and not be a, have it be a qualitative escalation if what you are credibly committing to is shooting down Russian military planes. The point I'll, I'll make on, on this, Alan, just to, to try and close this up, is that you've described this communication and this red line that like the people have established, but it's run right now that's entirely defined by Russia, right? They've said, we are going to treat 
any sort of action moving into, into Ukraine as a no-fly zone. They haven't issued a military threat in response to at least a clear one in response to sanctions. That's something that can change tomorrow, right? It depends on how credible an actor you think Vladimir Putin is. Do we really think he's a credible actor on this stuff? I, I think we have reason to doubt that that's the case. Like whether the fact that we have some sort of tacit agreement, which it seems to be that, you know, we're reading into this saying, oh yeah, I mean, like the, the Russians have said, they're not going to respond militarily if we arm the shit out of the Ukrainians or if we completely dipstick their economy. That's assuming a lot about like where the Russians have drawn their lines in a very irrational way from a, you know, regime preservation perspective. That's kind of my four point here is that, you know, we're taking as a given these, these red lines that Russia can change at any given moment. I, I think we sometimes need to think ourselves as well about saying, well, maybe we need to actually think about where Russia's interests are in this and think about maybe there are other realms of possibility that we can pursue that are different from just these red lines that we've kind of been taken as a given. Um, and again, reinforced by the Russian perspective. I mean, that's how you get to more effective policy. Uh, that's how you get to a, a, an outcome that serves your strategic interests um, most effectively and the strategic interests that you think are important, whether humanitarian or otherwise. You know, it's a hard choice. It's a really is a hard choice. I think we need to underscore that. But but red lines don't get you out of that hard choice. And they're it's kind of, it's a bit of an illusion, frankly. And that's kind of my fundamental point here. Um, we just need to engage more critically with these sorts of decisions instead of assuming like, oh, this is the wrong side of a red line. And so that should dictate our answer. And I, I just don't hear that sort of critical engagement with those red lines actually happening. I just want to make one one semi-unrelated point to close out this segment, which is to point out that, I mean, because of everything that we've described, it does strike me that the the best outcome and in a sort of a tragic sense here is just some kind of negotiated agreement between Ukraine and Russia that stops the fighting and saves people's lives. It seems pretty clear at this point that that's going to come if it does come at significant cost to Ukraine. But, you know, however plucky and uh, successful the Ukrainian military has been thus far, it just cannot hold up long term against Russia. And I will note that um, Zelensky uh, posted a, a statement on his website um, from an interview he conducted with ABC. And I'm I'm using Yandex Translate here from Ukrainian to English. So apologies if I get the, the specifics wrong. But he did suggest that he was open to some kind of negotiations with Russia on the future of Donetsk, Luhansk, and, and Crimea, and perhaps some kind of regional security agreement with a commitment by Ukraine not to enter NATO. It strikes me that, you know, Zelensky's incredible popularity as a kind of figure of resistance might actually make that a pretty hard pill for Ukrainians to swallow right now. But I'm I'm still kind of hoping against hope that Ukraine and Russia will be able to hush something out just so, frankly, people can can stop dying because the longer that this goes on, the worse it's going to get. Speaking about skeptical takes, we heard I got an interesting filing uh, turning to domestic affairs from the January 6th committee in litigation surrounding efforts to secure certain records from one John Eastman, a former law school dean, a law professor who advanced some very novel theories about the Electoral Count Act and other aspects of the transition of power in the United States uh, in the aftermath of the 2020 election, where we saw the January 6th committee suggest that, in fact, President Donald Trump might have engaged in some criminal activity in the aftermath of 2020 elections and specifically surrounding the events of January 6th, 2021. And it's worth noting this brief doesn't necessarily assert that in the context of a criminal claim or even a civil claim, really. It is trying to defeat uh, or carve out a uh, or make the case that they fit within an exception to privilege that might otherwise protect these documents called the crime fraud exception, basically saying like, look, there's a credible reason to think these people may have engaged in criminal activity. The court needs to look at these records and decide, well, was this related to criminal or potentially criminal activity, in which case the privilege doesn't apply. So a much lower bar, but it still has gotten a lot of press, although frankly, like a lot of press and attention, maybe from folks who don't fully understand that ramification of it. And so I think it's worth digging in here. What does this tell us about what the January 6th committee is working on, is headed towards, and what impact is this going to have on the direction that the investigation is going on, in particular, 
at where it intersects with the Justice Department, which has thus far been mum on the extent to which any of this is really subject to a criminal investigation. But that at least the January 6th committee seems to be strongly suggesting the predicates very well may be there because the standard for the predication of an investigation, at least the kind of lowest bar first threshold that Justice Department prosecutors look at would seem to be checked by this particular set of assertions the committee's brought forward. Quintalon, I turn it over to you first. Yeah, so I should say that literally as we are recording this, uh, news broke that the Justice Department has charged Enrique Terrio, who is the leader of the Proud Boys, with a conspiracy related to the January 6th attack. I don't think it is seditious conspiracy, so sorry, Alan, but conspiracy nonetheless. Uh, so we have not yet read the filing because, again, this literally just happened. Um, but I do think that that is worth keeping in mind as we discuss the relationship between what the January 6th committee is doing and what the Justice Department is doing, because it, it speaks to, uh, uh, I think, the seriousness of the Justice Department investigation and the fact that maybe they're starting to scoop up some of the bigger fish um, as they did with the, the Oath Keepers seditious conspiracy indictment. I will say, I so I read this filing by the January 6th committee definitely as a, a sign that they're, you know, willing to play hardball um, in terms of how they're thinking about President Trump's role here. I don't know if we should expect the Justice Department to do anything. They've been so far extremely small C conservative in terms of what they're willing to do or say in terms of the role of political leadership in engineering January 6th and in failing to stop it. You know, never say never. But it does strike me that it's kind of a qualitatively different thing for a congressional committee to take this kind of a step and to make this kind of an accusation than it is for the Justice Department. Again, I, I don't know. It They make a pretty compelling case, although I do think they have kind of a hole around the corrupt intent prong of the conspiracy allegations that they're leveraging against Trump just because of his uh, unique psychology, shall we say. But it is pretty striking that they're willing to go this far out on the limb and, and make that. Alan, I, I know you have thoughts about the, the corrupt intent aspect of this. Yeah. I mean, I, I do agree with you, Quinta, that this is I think a preview of the criminal referral that the committee is going to uh, send to the Justice Department. Um, it, it'd be very odd for them to put this in a filing. I mean, these are a bunch of smart people. They understand how this filing would be read and perceived. You know, I think the only reason that they would put this in a filing uh, is if they intended to, at the conclusion or you know, at some point, conclude that uh, crimes have been committed by the president and that therefore DOJ should investigate it. Um, you know, th there's a great uh, law for piece that we'll link in the show notes that that goes through the filing and talks about you know what what it tells us about what the committee has been doing. Uh, and and I think that the broad outlines of the, these charges that the committee is proposing or that the committee suggests may have been, or the, the crimes the committee uh, suggests may have been uh, uh, committed by the president. And these have been known for some time, um, or at least we've had some idea of how you could bring such a case. I think what is notable, of course, is that the committee has access to an enormous amount of documents that are not yet on the public record. And so presumably they have reason to think that their ability to make the case is stronger. I, I think you know, as with Quinta, that the main struggle here is the issue of you know, mens rea, the issue of corrupt intent. Um, you know, part of it is, as Quinta pointed out, the, the unique nature of, of the President Trump's personality, right? You know, in, in a sense, his kind of off the charts level of narcissism and self-delusion is almost protective in certain cases because he does seem kind of incapable of absorbing information that uh, goes against his personal interest, uh, which then could allow a finder of fact to conclude that he actually believed all the nonsense that he was saying, and he really believed there was a conspiracy, and he really believed that, you know, Vice President Pence had the ability to unilaterally override the Electoral College certification, and so on, and so on. Um, yeah, at the same time, I do think it's important to recognize that while this is a, a serious issue that prosecutors would have to address, and obviously both the committee and DOJ, if it is preparing an investigation, uh, and by the way, other investigations that are going on, such as the investigation in uh, Fulton County, uh, Georgia, uh, over Trump's interference uh, in the Georgia count of, of, of the election, that in all these cases, prosecutors have to think through the issues of mens rea. I don't think that that's not a case that could not successfully be brought. Um, I think in each situation, both around January 6th, but also in the Georgia case, you know, there is a decent amount of evidence that 
Trump was being told by a lot of people that this was not in fact legal. And, you know, the law ultimately has ways of dealing with self-delusional narcissistic con men. Trump would not be the first. Um, there's a certain point at which the, the law can look at a defendant and say, um, this person was acting with such reckless disregard of the truth. And they kind of had a it intentionally closed their mind to the possibility that what they were doing was illegal, such that we're going to find corrupt intent, even if, you know, this wasn't a kind of Richard Nixon like figure uh, who seemed to have literally been sitting in the White House plotting to do illegal things knowingly. Uh, but it is it is a challenge. And, you know, I think I think over you know, hanging over all of this is the prudential considerations of bringing a prosecution against not just a former president, not just a, you know, political opponent of the current administration, but of the current standard bearer of the Republican Party. Now, that is not to say that it should never be done, right? Presidents are not above the law. And part of what it means to have a government of laws and not men is that if someone has committed a crime, you have to hold that person to account. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's this, this kind of phrase, and I'm, I, I last heard it in the wire, but it long predates that, right? If you're going to if you're gonna aim for the king, you, you best shoot to kill, right? You know, if you're going to take an action like this, it has to be on- That does uh, indeed predate the wire. Yes, it does. It does indeed predate the wire. I think the, the, wire, the it, wire version is you come at the king, you best not miss. Yes, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. You, you come at the king, you best not miss, right? Which is to say, right, if you're going to, if, if you're going to bring a prosecution that will be the most famous and infamous trial literally in American history- you best do it on overwhelming grounds of guilt because you don't want it to come down to some like split appellate or Supreme Court decision about mens rea, et cetera, et cetera. Like, that's just a bad look for, for everyone. Um, and that's something that I understand why the congressional committee might not feel like it's job to consider, though I think it is, but it is definitely the attorney general's job to consider. And so, you know, I, I suspect that whatever decision Attorney General Garland has made, is making, I, I'm not sure that he is going to feel particularly bullied one way or the other by the committee, though they, of course, should put forward their own their own view of, of what happened. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I, it strikes me that procedurally, the committee is actually creating interesting, like a little factual or probably legal posture here, right? In that this judge to rule on this privilege assertion is going to have to, re- well, there's a chance at least if they get their way is going to have to rule review a bunch of these documents that are in camera, uh, meaning they're not available to the public yet. And then rule on whether they support the conclusion that there's at least some threshold of evidence that president Trump engaged in illegal behavior. A judicial finding to that effect is actually like a pretty powerful public thing, right? Now that's not the same as saying he's guilty. It's not, it's just a different legal threshold, different legal standard. I think a lot of that's probably going to get lost in the mix, right? Like, I think if a judge reaches this ruling, I think a lot of people are going to be like, oh, a judge said, like, Trump broke the law, right? And, it, and a judge did kind of say that Trump broke the law. It's a, it's not really if you break down and get all, like, you know, lock school about it. Not what he said. But, like, that's actually kind of a clever little uh, posture to, like, get a little talking point here. And that puts a lot more pressure on the Justice Department, potentially, when you have that sort of legal factual finding, and particularly when it's about this like closed universe of docs that may not be closed forever, but for the moment, at least the public doesn't have and creates a lot more public interest in what those documents are um, and underscores why they're relevant to what the committee is doing, although that's that's the, in the nature of the ruling. So, you know, it, it's a really interesting uh, move, I think. I mean, not unanticipated, like Eastman should have seen this coming uh, when he started making these sorts of privilege assertions. Other candidates are going to be in a similar sort of vein. But it strikes me that like the actual judge is ruling on this. And I think we should note at the hearing on it is today the day we're recording and will happen before we this episode will get released. And it's possible they'll get a bench ruling on it and we'll have an opinion come after the fact, uh, depending on how seriously they take the claims that there is a uh, underwhelming need here. So, uh, yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting development. Something, something worth watching. Well, unfortunately, that brings us about to the end of our time for this episode. We will have to revisit this topic as these proceedings continue once we get a ruling potentially as soon as later today. But of course, this is Rational Security. We're not going to leave you to the rest of your week without some object lessons to think about with your free time until next week's episode. Alan, why don't you start us out with your first object lesson? So I I have two object lessons, uh, one of which I only realized minutes ago. My first object lesson is happy birthday, Scott. Thank you. Appreciate it. My second object lesson, the one that I actually came into the pod with, is blessedly unrelated to any current events whatsoever. Uh, It is antlers.
those wonderful bony protuberances on deer and elk and other cute forest creatures. I'm a big fan of antlers. I think they're very cool looking. And the thing I like most about them is that getting them doesn't require harming the animal because antlers, unlike horns, fall off at the end of the season. That's what makes antlers antlers. So, you know, when, you know, when you see a big bony antler, you know, on someone's mantle or wall, um, almost always, or hopefully, or it could have certainly could have been uh, that this was just, you know, at the end of the mating season, when all the elk have battled each other uh, for mating rights, it all gets very complicated. Uh, the antlers just uh, fell off. Um, and there's a, a great uh, article uh, in the latest issue of The New Yorker about the annual, uh, what's called the shed hunt. Uh, it's basically when a, a, a Tons of people descend on Wyoming to run through the woods in the early spring to collect uh, antlers that have fallen off of uh, elk the season before. And then those antlers get sold. Um, and so uh, I am now, I think, officially in the market for some some fun antlers to decorate my, I don't know, house with, my office with. And I'm just delighted that I can do that feeling feeling good because no elk or deer were harmed in the uh, making of these lovely antlers. So I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that when you see like the big, beautiful, double lobed sort of things like that, where it's like two sides kind of meet in the middle, there's usually like a little bony plate connecting to two sets of horn antlers. I think those are not arrived at voluntarily. <laughs> those, those in fact, have been harvested. So sometimes on the wall, you'll see those, but they fall. I think they fall off and often break off like further up the stem, but I could be wrong about this. I, I, I was... I was uh, had a conversation with a hunter about this at some point. So sometimes when you see antlers, they have in fact been taken from an actually have been actually taken from an animal that had the antlers on them. Uh, that's true when they're kind of underdeveloped antlers. And sometimes if you see like an actual skull with the antlers attached, then obviously um, that animal was either killed or had died independently. Um, but if you just see two separate antlers there can be big and in good shape and come all the way down to the base. Those antlers just fall off because the animal regrows them year after year, uh, which is, which is why horn, you know, collecting horns is bad, but collecting antlers can be fine. Pretty wild. Deers having horns is one of those things where you're like, man, nature is really fucked up where you're like, that's just crazy. If you think about it too much, it's like, Oh yeah, we have like basically like little dogs and then they just grow giant, like spiky bones out of their head. That's crazy. Anyway, Quinta, what's your object lesson? I just want to say that uh, Antler Facts is really like a, a perfect New Yorker article. It reminds me of there's a joke in uh, Parks and Recreation many years ago about like the the apotheosis of New Yorker articles being a imagined article about the history of the latter. Um, and I can say this because my object lesson is also a New Yorker article. Alan and I did not coordinate this, but this is a New Yorker article about possible voter fraud, emphasis on possible, by one Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff. And yes, the same guy who was running around talking about voter fraud in the 2020 election. So this is a New Yorker article by Charles Bethia, who has discovered that uh, in September 2020, Mark Meadows changed his voter registration to a trailer in North Carolina where he does not appear to ever have lived or even slept a night. His wife once rented that property, but Meadows himself does not appear to ever have been there. Uh, so that is generally not best practices. You will not be surprised to hear. Um, and Bethea goes into some of the, the details. There's also now a companion article by the Washington Post fact checker that provides additional documentation of this somewhat odd arrangement by Meadows. So just a, a fun little fact to spice up your day is this very, very strange arrangement. I like it. I like it. Well, since you guys have given yourselves away as the elites reading New Yorker magazine, I'll have to bring us down to earth with some real, some real, uh, you know, mainstay American reading, which is Punch Magazine, the elite magazine about cocktail making that I referenced from occasion on occasion. Because uh, I am back with another 
drinky uh, suggestion an object lesson this week. Something I got to try a few weeks ago. I actually tweeted about it a little bit. So some of you all might have already seen it. I realized I did not do another object lesson. I tried it again this weekend. It's amazing and just wild and worth trying, which is something called a shakerado. It is an Italian way of drinking coffee. But evidently, some Italians have started doing it with their Amaros, uh, which are the her- herbal bitter liqueurs that I quite like, that some people quite like are kind of in vogue. Or I think they were kind of in vogue like three or four years ago, and I just never got over it. But if you take a, a Brolio, which is an Alpine Amaro that is usually like bracingly kind of bitter, and you shake it, and I actually put a little bit of salt and a little bit of lemon juice in there uh, just uh, on a suggestion of something I read on Reddit. And do a reverse dry shake, which is like you shake it on ice, you strain it out, you put it back in the empty shaker, shake it again until you get it really foamy. The whole thing turns into like an egg white foam. It's phenomenal. Now, not maybe not quite that foamy, but almost like a like a nitro sort of thing. And the flavor goes from something that's like again bracingly bitter to herbal and a little bit of sweet and a little bit floral and is wildly different sort of drink. And it's totally worth trying. Like it just totally changed my whole brain about Brolio, which I bought a bottle of and kind of regretted. And now I'm like, is now one of my new favorite things to drink. So 100% recommend people who try that if you're an Amaro drinker at home. Also worked with Chinar, which is a little cheaper and easier to find than Brolio. But Brolio so far is like by far the best one. And I'll attach this article from Punch Magazine that highlighted this possibility uh, in the first place and gives tests a bunch of different Amaros to tell you which ones this actually works with. Scott, you are continuing your unbroken streak as Lawfare's fanciest boy. And I love it. I'm Happy birthday. I may be a warmonger, but I'm a fancy <laughs> one. You're, you're a fancy birthday and boy. That's fine. I'm a, I'm a happy birthday, warmongering boy, and I'm fine with that. Um, one tomorrow at a time. Scott, I'm, I'm very glad that that in the bunker, uh, when we're all hiding from nuclear fallout after you've caused World War III, at least the drinks will be good. I will be reverse dry shank- shaking my ass <laughs> off. Absolutely right. <laughs> There's the only way at that point. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebearer, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You'll find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. And of course, lawfareblog.com is also where you go to read our various writings for Lawfare and the writings of many of our colleagues, which is definitely worth checking out. You can purchase Rational Security swag at thelawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And whenever and wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass along to your loved ones. And while you're at it, check out some of Lawfare's other podcasts including Chatter, a long-form interview podcast, our daily Lawfare podcast, uh, which provides a variety of deep dives on national security topics every day of the week, uh, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and our various Lawfare Presents podcast series, the latest of which, The Aftermath, focus on the government's response to January 6th. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamtush 2 of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patja Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, and no guest in particular, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 